Support for WPR comes from Fragrant Isle Lavender Farm and Shop on Washington Island in Door County, with more than 20,000 lavender plants. Open for business from 10 to 5. FragrantIsle.com, a magical place. Support for WPR comes from 4imprint, providers of promotional products for businesses, including embroidered apparel, trade show items, and logoed business gifts. More is at 4imprint.com. 4imprint, for certain. That's from the Grammar Song, one of many designed to teach us parts of speech and language rules. Double negatives, split infinitives, who versus whom, less versus fewer. Where do the rules of grammar come from, and why do so many people think they hate grammar? How do children learn grammar, and does all that texting your teenager's doing mean the death of good grammar? And who says if grammar's good? I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Air. My guest today is Anya Vonner, the Enid H. Anderson Professor of English Language and Linguistics and Chair of the English Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches courses and publishes books on English syntax and grammar. She oversees a UW student project called Grammar Badgers. We're determined to make this a fun hour as we explore the topic, Grammar is Not Your Enemy. Welcome to University of the Air, Anya. Good morning, Emily. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you a personal question. How did you get to be someone who is associated with grammar? Grammar is one of my favorite things to talk about. And I think I did not always love grammar because I didn't always know what grammar was. But I was always a structure-minded person. I loved math and I loved learning foreign languages. And to see that grammar really enables us to put into language what we think, be creative, be funny, um, was a major discovery when I, when I realized what irony was as a child. So that grammar enables, enables us to do all these things. I think that's when I decided that I'd rather go the language route than the math route. You're a non-native speaker of English, which makes a kind of irony if your specialty is English grammar. But do you think it also helps you see it from a broader perspective? Oh, absolutely. I think that we don't really bring normally a lot of appreciation to our first language. It's just something that we learn as we get older. It's like learning to walk. You also learn to talk. You don't really realize what a major accomplishment that is. So we may not be very much aware of the beauty of our first language. We just take it for granted. But then when we learn a second language, for many of us, uh, the circumstances are quite different. You may be in school, perhaps you picked the language, you chose the language because you wanted to travel or learn more about the culture of that country. So you bring a lot more uh, appreciation to that language from the get-go. Uh, that was certainly the case for me. And um, you also very often end up knowing more about the language. You may not speak it as well. So um, my proficiency in German is definitely higher than in English, but I know a lot more about English, and um, I appreciate and admire it a lot more than German. 
which I should probably not say because German is, of course, a beautiful language as well. <laughs> Unless you talk to Mark Twain, who wrote this magnificent essay called The Awful German Language, <laughs> where he points out the fact that, for example, in German, you've got gender for different nouns. You know, there's a feminine, masculine, or neuter, so that you can have a fork, knife, and spoon all being different genders. He points out that uh, a turnip is feminine, whereas a young lady in German has is neuter. And he has this conversation where it's, you know, William, where is the turnip? She has gone to the kitchen. Where is the accomplished and beautiful maiden? It has gone to the opera. And he says only the, the, the German should, should be a dead language because only the dead have time to learn it. it. It's fun to make, you know, to poke fun at other languages because sometimes the rules do seem kind of silly when you step back and look at them. Well, the thing is that um, we may look for the for the wrong rules. So gender in German um, is not really something that's based in semantics. So you have to think of gender really as a, there are three classes of nouns in German, and they select different kinds of articles. And we call these three classes masculine, fe feminine, and neuter, but we could just as well call them A, B, and C. And if we did that, then people would perhaps not find it uh, so amazing that a turnip would belong in one class and uh, a girl into the other class. So um, gender in German is is really more based on, uh, in many cases, on sound. Uh, does a word have two syllables or one syllable? And um, once you know that, you are less surprised at the assignment of gender in German. But I would say German is, uh, if I had to learn it as a second language, German is a very tricky language because in subordinate clauses, the verb comes at the end of the sentence, and mm -hmm. Mark Twain pointed that out as well. <laughs> so for the longest time, you can be talking, and nobody knows what the verb is going to be, so nobody knows what exactly it is you're talking about. And then, wham, it comes at the end of the sentence. So are you talking about somebody dying or marrying? Really makes a difference. And I understand that is tricky, but if the rules were not systematic in some way, children would not learn the language. And uh, German children aren't any slower in language acquisition than um, English-speaking children. Well, let's get a good working definition of grammar. How do you define grammar? So I'm a linguist. And for a linguist, let me start with what grammar is not. Grammar is not a book that somebody with knowledge wrote. And that's a collection of rules that people have to memorize so that they can be considered educated speakers of a language. That is not grammar uh, in the mind of a linguist. In the mind of a linguist, a grammar is something that's invisible. It's in your mind. It's the capacity and the implicit knowledge that enables you to put words together to form sentences in a language that other people understand so that you can transport your thoughts into language so that other people understand them. So the rules of combination that underlie sentences and texts, that's grammar. Now, everybody who speaks a language knows grammar in that sense because otherwise they couldn't, they couldn't talk, they couldn't form sentences. So everybody knows grammar. If somebody says, I don't know grammar, um, that's a contradiction because if you didn't, then you couldn't produce that sentence. So that's grammar, but those rules are not easily visible, and it's the job of the linguist to make those rules visible, but they are very different from simple rules and incorrect rules, like don't end a sentence on a preposition. When I was in high school, I didn't think I liked English, which is why I started in college in music and then later came back to English literature. And the reason was English, in, in some senses, was taught in terms of grammar and diagramming sentences and parts of speech, and it seemed technical. 
And um, can you talk about why so many people hate grammar? And if you say, I'm going to tell you about grammar, you want to go do anything else just about. Why is that? I think it is because when people talk about grammar, very often the people who do talk about grammar um, are out to uh, are set out to point out where people have deficiencies in grammar. So there's no fun in being told that you're doing something wrong. Um, and uh, these gotcha moments are really some people enjoy them. So you can buy uh, you can buy mugs with prints. I silently correct your grammar on them. You know, mm-hmm. some people give me these mugs as as gifts. That's not something that I would ever do. Because I, I as, a, as a linguist, we just, we just describe, we note, we describe, we see a pattern, and we admire. We admire variety, certainly. We admire creativity. But the way grammar is sometimes taught at schools, it's like it's this closed system. It's completely separate from the admiration of uh, a language, and it's completely separate from creativity, which is just so, so wrong, because grammar enables us to be creative. Uh, without grammar, we would probably learn sentences as chunks, and uh, we would only repeat sentences that we've heard. But children from the very get-go produce sentences that are novel, that are innovative, that are sentences they haven't heard from any adult. We all, you know, we love, uh, we love the sentences that children produce. They're just so creative. And that's because they're learning grammar and they have grammar. So I think the big mistake that um, curricula make at school is to teach grammar as something that constrains you. Uh, it's something that you have to memorize. It doesn't make sense to you rather than pointing out that grammar is a, th- is a source of creativity in language and uh, coming from a point where we admire variety. You say it one way, your friend says it another way. We don't have to discuss who's right. Uh, we can just uh, record two different ways of saying the same thing and enjoy that. And uh, if we did that, then I think people would not be so afraid of grammar and wouldn't hate it so much. I saw that you referred in an interview once to grammar as like a corset, the way people see it as as something that's going to restrict them and take the life out of them. And instead, you're saying that it should be something that is liberating. I think so, because grammar really enables you to express your thoughts. And there are infinite uh, possibilities to express something in language. And so I find that very liberating. And as somebody... um, uh, who, who studies foreign languages and tries to learn them, the moment you've mastered, let's say, 50% of the grammar of that language, it really liberates you because you can now express your thoughts. You can now communicate with people, and that's um, um, the liberating aspect of grammar, of grammar. Language doesn't just get stuck in your mind. You can share your thoughts with other people. Language as a corset is really when you tell people how exactly to express themselves and, if you, and when you tell them this is a good way and this is a bad way. And that just leads to many people shutting down or feeling insecure about the way they speak. And then uh, they will refrain from um, uh, talking to other people, especially in a second language. And that is just a shame because uh, what is language all about? It's about being creative. It's about communicating with other people. It's about sharing our world. And grammar, I find, lies at the heart of that. But would you go so far as to say that anything goes, that um, teaching the rules of grammar then is not necessary since we want to be liberated? And let's start with just an example. Um, I opened at the top of the hour before the news with I can't get no satisfaction, which is, according to grammatical rules, incorrect. 
Um, I can't get no satisfaction is a double negative, meaning I can get satisfaction. So what would you do with something like a double negative? Well, I would say that that's not how anyone interprets that sentence. <laughs> I mean, I did when I was in seventh grade, just learning English, listening to the Rolling Stones. I thought I should write to Mick Jagger and tell him that he was using grammar incorrectly. But I was in my first year of learning English. Um, but nobody seriously misunderstands that. Nobody seriously understands a song like Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Um, nobody, uh, when Pink Floyd sang We Don't Need No Education, uh, thought that that was a call for uh, going back to school. So um, there isn't really, when you say that's what the sentence means, well, actually not, because people don't interpret it in that way. Language is not like math, where necessarily two negatives cancel each other out. There are many languages where negation is expressed in two positions in a sentence, French being one of them. So in French, when you negate a sentence, there's a little piece that comes before the verb and there's another piece that comes after the verb, and that's how you form negation. So you can negate by using two negative things and claiming that that's what the sentence means when clearly that's not what it means to most people who hear the sentence is just um, disingenuous. So would I say that um, double negation is, is totally fine? Well, first of all, in linguistics, we call it um, negative concord rather than double negation to really stress it's not really two, two um, separate negative elements that um, cancel each other out as if it were a mathematical operation. But there is a, such a thing as emphatic negation when you really want to make your point. So instead of saying, I don't know anything, you might say, I don't know nothing. Mm -hmm. And then you can also point out that this is something that occurs more often in spoken language. So it's perfectly fine in one variety of language. But in another variety of language, let's say you write a formal essay, it may not be appropriate, just like there are other words uh, or constructions you wouldn't use in formal writing. So I wouldn't say it's incorrect. I would just say it's not acceptable in a certain register. But in another register, it makes total sense and nobody really is confused unless you're a language learner in their first year of learning English. Nobody really is confused by I don't get no satisfaction. <laughs> right. Or let's take Gwen Stefani's rich girl. If I was a rich girl, technically it should be if I were a rich girl. What do you do with that? Um, I would say um, that is really um, – the subjunctive is really – a grammatical construction where we see change that was is becoming more and more uh, acceptable. And when I say something like that, language change, and it's becoming this or it's becoming that, you may wonder, well, how do you know that? So um, linguists uh, over the last uh, 30 years really have um, benefited from um, electronic corpora. So um, we have large collections of language from different registers, from different varieties of English across the world. I mean, English is not just a country spoken in the U.S. and in the uh, United Kingdom. And you can analyze um, that um, recorded language from different registers. So formal language, it may be language from fiction, it may be language from radio shows. And you can see which forms gain, um, gain in frequency and which uh, forms kind of phase out in certain registers. And I would say that uh, was in the subjunctive uh, clearly has uh, gained a lot of traction to the extent that it has become acceptable. It's the same thing um, with who and whom. So, um, of course, um, we can describe the structural environment that's okay for using whom, that it's an object question, like whom did you meet? But you couldn't say um, 
who bought, whom bought the ice cream. You can say that because whom would not be appropriate there. So we can describe where whom is accept, uh, where whom is the um, uh, acceptable pronoun. But whom is just declining in use and who has essentially become a pronoun you can use for subjects and objects. And whether or not people like that, uh, it is still a fact that it has become accepted in um, formal writing as well. So we can collect large corpora of language. We can analyze frequency patterns. And at some point, you just have to accept that this is now the form that is used in certain uh, registers, including written registers. And if you don't like it, don't use it. But I would always say don't berate people who do. Don't get out that red pen, that infamous red pen. It's also clear that sometimes when things change, like with pronoun uses, where you don't want to have he or she or his or her, but maybe they and their, if you're talking about non-binary um, approaches to people, um, if you don't want to use he to stand for all people, or if you want to be more inclusive, sometimes grammar actually has political overtones, does it not? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are efforts to regulate language, and some of these efforts are uh, efforts that um, are embracing diversity rather than uh, efforts to rein people in. And so um, that is something that has become really visible in the case of they in English as an uh, inclusive non-binary pronoun where we see a lot of support from authorities, really, to um, to change your language and to go that route. But it is not to box people in. It is really, uh, again, to liberate people and to be more inclusive. And many speakers find that more convincing than if somebody tells you to use whom because it is just a better form. They don't really see how it's better, how it serves anyone better. But many people recognize that they actually is better because it serves more people to express their identity. Now, they also has a long, uh, singular they also has a long history. I mean, it was used um, um, by, by Shakespeare. If I can just read you a quote here from the Comedy of Errors. There's not a man I meet but doth salute me as if I were their well-acquainted friend. Their well-acquainted friend. So we see that long history of they, and I think that's why they is so successful as a non-binary pronoun, because it has been established, it has deep roots in the English language. And so uh, it is a better candidate for that pronoun than some um, some pronouns that were created um, uh, artificially, you could say, uh, just to just to be binary pronouns, but they didn't really feel like natural words in the English language, so they weren't really terribly successful, like something like zer or z. So people use they because it has been around for a long time. It has been used as a gender-neutral pronoun for a long time, and using it really serves a good purpose um, so people can express their identity better. One more popular song with supposedly bad grammar for you to respond to, Bob Dylan, Lay, Lady, Lay, um, instead of Lie, Lady, Lie, across a big brass bed. Yeah. What about Lay and Lie? Lay and Lie, right? That's um, the two verbs in English. One is intransitive, lie. One is transitive, lay. You lay the book somewhere. And it's made so complicated because the past tense of lie is lay. So um, English morphology and past tense doesn't really help you keep these words separate. And many people um, mix these up for, for, for that reason. Uh, I will say that English has many transitive, intransitive verb pairs where uh, you actually use the same verb. So, for example, take the verb open. If you have I opened the door or the door opened, 
the verb doesn't look different. It just looks like it's exactly the same verb. But one is a verb where you have an agent doing something. I opened the door. And the intransitive form, we call it intransitive when the verb is not followed by an object. So the intransitive form, the door opened, just looks like the transitive form. For lie and lay, we have two different verbs, but I'm not surprised that people find that not very systematic because there are a bunch of other verbs in English that don't behave in the same way. So what we really see here is that people are kind of regularizing uh, a pattern of lie lay that hasn't, um, that, hasn't ex uh, that hasn't really been recognized as standard yet. But I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future we get there because it is just a pattern that many other verbs show. So it's not really necessarily the case that people cannot remember or are too dumb to realize the difference. They are using these two verbs in a way that um, exemplifies a pattern that many other verbs in English show. So you could say they are actually overgeneralizing a rule they have. And that's a very different way of looking at that. We're going to talk more about Grammar Police and also about a new program called Grammar Badgers when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Professor Anya Vonner, and we are talking about grammar is not your enemy. I think one reason some of us have this perception of grammar as an enemy is because it does seem something regulated, something that we are going to be criticized about. I will say that over the last several decades of doing public radio programs, I have had people write in and say, you said this word when you should have said that. We all have this feeling that we might screw up. We might get it wrong. Um, there's a funny clip. I'm just going to play a little bit of it where an actual police officer in this scene is interviewing a bank robber, interrogating him. But you'll see it, it becomes a focus not on the crime the bank robber has uh, committed, but on his crimes against the English language. Why? I told you I didn't do nothing. Bad grammar isn't going to help you. The double negative means that you admit to doing something. So, tell the truth. Where exactly were you? Well, yes, I admit. We were outside the hotel. But other people were too. Maybe less than you'd expect for a Friday, though. Fewer. Fewer than you'd expect. Uh, that's what I just said. Anyway, there were four very suspicious men there, two of whom I seen go off. <coughs> two of whom I saw. <coughs> Who? Who is the subject of the sentence? Whom is the object? Right, well, it must have been them what did it. It must have been they who did it. Exactly. That gives you a sense of the, the, the humor that comes from trying to get someone to speak correctly. Um, Anya, how would you respond to that clip? Well, first I'll say I cannot watch TV without taking notes when something like this uh, crops up in dialogue, that somebody is uh, stereotyped um, on, on, on grammar or if somebody really talk about grammar, the less and fewer things, for example, in Game of Thrones that came up a couple of times um, and the Internet exploded and said, yes, he's not only a good leader, he's also the master of grammar. And so uh, I find it um, interesting in a, in a meta uh, kind of way I will say that I'm also sad that these uh, stereotypes about language may have the repercussion that some people feel that the language they use is not validated and that they sound like somebody who should be um, 
either jailed or should not lead or should not have a word in the discussion. So on a on a lighthearted, funny meta level, um, yeah, I can I can join the the chorus of laughter, but this really can can play out in a much more serious way, and that means that some people will feel that they uh, are just not enough, and that they should not talk, and that their voices should not be heard, and that's a um, that's a serious dimension of this then. Yes, and, and we see that there's class, that, that if you speak a certain way, you're going to be lo- labeled as lower class. And we think of Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle, where he is working to get her to sound proper without understanding the value that's intrinsic to her as a person. Um, and it, it, it can also, I think, go along with speech. Wouldn't you agree that, that we tend to make people speak a certain way? Um, I know with my mother coming from Appalachia in the so-called hillbilly area, um, if, if you spoke with that kind of accent or said ain't or had a drawl, um, you would be made to feel you were dumb even if you were brilliant. Um, and in certain accents, we hold them as, as more correct. Um, I, I know Jean Faraka, colleague here on public radio, she was told not to sound so much like she was from Brooklyn. When I started with radio, I was coached to get rid of some of the southern things that came uh, from my mother's heritage where I would say just instead of just or fur instead of for. You were supposed to sound like, I was told, like someone from Kansas. Um, can you talk about class and attitudes when it comes to grammar? Yeah, and if I can add, try a German accent, um, <laughs> and then you can surprise people by letting on at some point in the conversation that you're a professor of English. That always leads to awkward silences. But but yeah, we um, stereotype people based on, on how they speak because some people think that if you don't speak standard English, and standard English is really just a construct, but if you don't speak standard English, it must mean that you speak a lesser English, and it must mean that the um, variety that you speak uh, doesn't have the complexity of standard English, which is, once you start looking at the patterns of these dialects, uh, completely untrue. And that's why I think it is very important that in all grammar, syntax, linguistics classes that we teach, we include an element of uh, linguistic variation and make students aware of the complexity of either the sound system or the morphology, that's the word forms, or the syntax of other varieties of English. And um, I always include um, African-American English in my classes because it is such a source of such innovation and creativity through um, its presence in the popular culture. And so something like the omission of the verb um, in we good, as in we are good, that is um, something that other people actually emulate uh, in certain environments where you want to be hip. So really looking at how an accent or a dialect is systematic uh, makes you aware that standard English is not any more intrinsically elegant or complex uh, than any other variety. Um, there are still language situations where I would recommend that um, demonstrating knowledge of standard English may be a good thing. But there's nothing really uh, linguistically better about standard English. So um, uh, in, in dialects of English, you may have distinctions uh, as an African-American English. Are you carrying out an action uh, habitually or are you just doing it once? So uh, there's a difference between saying um, on Sundays she'd be playing uh, uh, piano 
So that means you are playing piano regularly on Sundays. You're using be instead of is. But if you're saying she is playing the piano, she's doing it right now. So that's a very systematic uh, difference, and speakers of that dialect are, um, have to learn that, and that's a complexity that standard English doesn't have. Are there other sort of favorite words or grammatical constructions, myths about grammar that you hear people talk about that you'd like to debunk? Let's oh, talk about the myths of grammar. Yeah. I mean, there are just so, so, so many. Um, and I sometimes ask my students, what are rules that you've been taught in school that perhaps you don't even, you, you don't even know what they mean? And they, um, the one that they bring up most frequently is um, not to end a sentence on a preposition. Um, that is called preposition stranding. And preposition stranding is an unfortunate name, I have to say, because it kind of at least signals to me that the preposition isn't very happy at the end of the sentence. It's stranded there. Um, but if we used a, a different name, then perhaps uh, it would get the recognition that it deserves. So ending a sentence on a preposition is totally fine in English and is the preferred form, actually, of many... Um, uh, well-respected writers. So um, a linguist, uh, Ingrid Teigen, did a study of how Jane Austen, and i bringing up Jane Austen, Emily, because I know <laughs> that you are a fan of Jane Austen's writing, uh, how Jane Austen dealt with prepositional phrases in her letters. So when she wasn't writing a character in a novel, but when she was just Jane writing her letters. And how often would she say something like... Um, uh, who did you buy this for? And how often would she say, for whom did you buy this? And comparable uh, constructions. So in, so in for whom, you keep the for and the whom together. For whom did you buy this? And in English, you can also just have um, the whom at the beginning of the sentence and leave the for behind. Who did you buy this for? Or whom did you buy this for? And that um, is the alternative. That's called preposition stranding. Let's just call it preposition ending so that it doesn't sound like the preposition is on an island and not very happy. And she, um, Ingrid Teigen, found that um, Jane Austen transitioned away from using the majority of for whom, transitioned away uh, from that to ending her sentence on the preposition as she became a more mature writer. That's what she did in her letters. So we, this was actually the preferred pattern for her when she had the chance to strand the preposition, she would rather strand it than move it to the beginning of the sentence. So we see that writers that we, uh, that we admire very much use this construction. And for some people, that is an argument that resonates with them. Uh, if They may correct their children, but if you demonstrate this is a construction that was used by Jane Austen, it's a construction that was used by Shakespeare, perhaps they feel... Um, that somebody who uses it today um, is, is validated. However, I will say the argument Jane Austen did it is not really the argument that we should necessarily reach for. If we analyze spoken and written language, we just see a pattern. And that pattern is that predominantly people, in if they have a situation where they can either start the sentence with a preposition or end it, they prefer ending it with a preposition. And so that must make it part of English grammar. You cannot say, but it's not English grammar if it is the language that people use. You cannot separate the language from the speaker. That's just something that one has to, um, that one has to uh, respect. And even the person who started it all in his 18th century grammar, when he said that in elevated style, we should not end a sentence on a preposition, he actually used 
<laughs> a sentence that ended on a preposition to make that statement. So that really tells you how much it was part of his grammar when he wrote his, um, his, his uh, was more like a style manual, I wouldn't call it a grammar, when he wrote the style manual for, for other speakers. So that's, um, that's a myth that never really was true. And even if people say the word is preposition, so pre means before, should come, should come before the noun, well, you can, you can not make a word behave in the way that it just doesn't behave, just because it's the, the category that we use for the word has the prefix pre in it. And um, that all comes from a time when, in, in the 18th century, English was the language that um, became the language acceptable for elevated writing. So until the 16th century, very much scientific writing and um, a lot of um, clerical writing, all was done in Latin. So Latin was the, um, the language of, of, of high education, of elevated style. And then in the 18th century, that's also when English got its first dictionary, English became the language that also was the language used by the cultivated, educated classes. And so rules had to be written for English so that it would be just as elegant, just as accepted, carry just as much prestige as Latin. And so some people wrote rules that made that made English structurally look like Latin. But the thing is, if uh, English followed the rules of Latin, it wouldn't be English. It would just right. be Latin with English words. And so people had to become more confident and put their trust in English as a language in its own right uh, that you can use in any kind of register. And in the 18th century, uh, just a lot of guidance was given that came from people who didn't really study the language at all. Um, and some of these rules kind of still floating around, but nobody follows them. And our most admired writers didn't follow them, not in the 18th century, not in the 19th century, and not now. But they're still making us feel kind of guilty. Another one is split infinitives, even though with Star Trek, you know, <laughs> to boldly go is splitting one. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, the split infinitive is another one, um, something that some linguists call a zombie rule. It's kind of like a rule that's still floating around, but it's not really um, not really alive in that nobody really understands where it comes from and why it should be a rule. So there is no rule in English that requires the word to to stay with the verb. To and the verb are two separate words in English. And there is no rule, and I'm just saying it very clearly here, that nothing can intervene. However, if you think of how this would translate into Latin... In Latin, the infinitive is formed with a little um, affix at the end of the verb, R-E, the two letters R-E. And so in Latin, you indicate that something is in the infinitive by just using one word. And of course, you don't split that word. In English, you have two words to indicate the infinitive, to go, to walk, to sing. And um, why would two words behave like one word in Latin? And why would anybody want that? So if you go back to the 19th century, there was a, uh, a book um, that was called A Plea for the Queen's English. And it said that splitting the infinitive was, and I'm quoting here, a practice entirely unknown to English speakers and writers. Well, <laughs> with the corpora that we have today, we can demonstrate it's not a practice entirely unknown. It's a practice that is practiced. And actually, we find that um, certain uh, chunks like the chunk to better understand. To better understand is a split infinitive, and it occurs most often in scientific, scholarly, heavily edited writing. So you could say it passed muster. So 
we do not really have that role, even though somebody in the 19th century um, kind of said, nobody does this, and therefore we should not be doing it. People did it in the 19th century, and people um, do it now. I know you've written a book about the passive voice. Can you talk about that, too? Ah, because The passive voice. I yes. love the passive voice. Nobody loves the passive voice. Everybody hates it. I love it. And when... Um, when I told a senior colleague at the time in the English department, a senior colleague in literature, that I was writing a book about the passive, she wasn't happy. Uh, she said, the passive? The passive is not allowed in my classes. And I thought that was just the most interesting thing because um, she was telling me using the passive that the passive was not a construction worth writing about because the passive is not allowed in my classes is, of course, a passive. So that just happens very often when people think they don't value a construction. And when they think they don't use the construction, actually, when you monitor their speech, they do use the construction. And it just shows that uh, what you think you do is very different from what you do. And that ju doesn't just hold for, for language. So to tell you what I love about the passive, I think it is fantastic that for most events, we can present them in two very different ways either through the eyes or the perspective of the person who acted or through, um, from the perspective of the entity that was acted on. So I could either say, I don't know, I opened the door, or I could say the door was opened, and I don't even have to say by me. I don't even have to say who did it. And there are many instances where you don't want to say who did it, and it's not always because you are evasive. Of course, um, mistakes were made. That's a sentence we hear from politicians all the time. <laughs> right. And that's, that's them being evasive. Absolutely. But you could also use the passive. Let's say you work, um, you work at a shelter and um, there's this dog that was at the shelter for three months. And then finally, a family came and adopted the, the dog. And you would tell your coworker on the next day, guess what? Timmy finally was adopted. There's nothing evasive about that. You're just focusing on Timmy the dog. You're not saying, guess what? The Miller family or some family adopted Timmy, where you give more space to the family. You focus on the dog because that's, um, that's what your mind uh, is on. And the passive gives us a way to turn our sentence around to take the position not of the person who acts, but the object, in this case, dog, that's uh, the target of the action. There's nothing inherently evasive about the passive. Yes, some people use it to be evasive, but you cannot blame that on the passive. That's just, uh, that's just on the speaker. And to give us that the passive gives us the way to look at events from... It's like to, having two different cameras on set when you, um, uh, when you film a scene. The passive is that second camera. And I think it just gives us more options. And anything that gives us more options is to be celebrated. When I was an undergraduate in the English department forever ago, I had a teacher who said to get rid of the verb to be. Ah, yes, I've heard that too. I've heard um, my office for the longest time was across from a, um, from a writing instruction classroom. And when the doors were opened, I sometimes felt like I had to dash into that other classroom and had to say, that's not, a, that's not actually true what you're saying. I heard people say you have to get rid of be because be makes your writing um, more static, less dynamic, um, which is uh, which is interesting because be in the passive doesn't doesn't make the sentence any less dynamic, but also be is used to form uh, what we call the progressive in English, something like Harry is singing, uh, the dog is barking. 
uh, that's actually more dynamic than the dog barks, which may come across as um, uh, a habit. This dog barks a lot. But if you're saying the dog is barking, it's happening right now. And that's because we have a form of be in the sentence. So it's, um, it's really not correct to say that if you use be, you're making your language less interesting and less dynamic. Be has many different functions in English. Grammar seems to have a lot more to it than one might think, and I can see that we don't want it to be our enemy. More on that topic when we continue in a moment with University of the Air. Preposition It's your ambition To tell me, tell me, tell me Exactly my position I could be on the couch Or outside my house I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Anya Vonner, and we are talking about grammar and how it is not your enemy. Even if we think we hate it, we actually should love it because it gives us the power of expression. Anya, can you tell me about the Grammar Badgers project that you have? I saw the website with wonderful pictures of a large Bucky Badger going around and asking students about grammar questions. Yeah, Grammar Badgers is a website that was created by graduate students when I taught a class called Bad Grammar. And so in that class, we looked at the history of grammar book writing and which constructions uh, have been singled out as constructions that speakers somehow get wrong. And we also tried to include an outreach, uh, public-facing element so students uh, designed the, the website, and I'm, uh, it was fantastic, the work that they did, just so creative. They did videos, they did quizzes, they did uh, presentations, they did mini lectures on grammatical topics. So, for example, they did a presentation on um, uh, slips of the tongue. Like, what does it mean when you say, um, instead of saying, I would go to the party with Harry, you might say, I will go to the party with Jane. Uh, is that a slip of the tongue or is it more like a, this Freudian thing that it indicates that actually deep down you want to go to the party with Jane? And so they're talking about uh, topics like that. They talk about who and whom and singular they and some of the topics that we discussed today. And it was a way for the students to really um, translate an academic topic and translate academic research into a format that somebody who's interested in language but doesn't necessarily have that linguistic background uh, would be able to understand and would find interesting. And so we are now building in all my classes that deal with grammar usage, we are building and adding to that website. And it's just a fantastic record of the, of the fabulous students I, I have worked with over the years. Now, the name of the course you taught that this grew out of bad grammar, I'm assuming that you came after that title ironically then. Yeah, so it was bad grammar. Actually, the, t the, the title was Bad Grammar and Metalinguistic Awareness. So it was, um, uh, it was about uh, the history of grammar writing, and it was about what people know about grammar. So also, in some way, uh, a history of linguistic awareness. 
And so we didn't teach we didn't teach anyone bad grammar, but we um, uh, we read a lot of historical grammars to see where certain ideas about language, certain ideas about grammar, certain ideas about why one thing might be better than another, where they actually come from, and who the person was, and why they became popular in the 18th century uh, rather than earlier. So. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of grammar change in English. If you ever listen to somebody read Beowulf, which is Old English, you wouldn't understand a word. Sometimes people say because uh, it's a Germanic language, I, as a native speaker of German, should understand it. I don't understand a word. It sounds different. The grammar is wildly different. So English English grammar has changed a lot, uh, and it's really only in the 18th century that people beca- um, that people felt the urge to standardize it. Well, let's jump to the 21st century and some of the things that are happening now that affect grammar. Even if you start typing um, in a program, autocorrect and some of the built-in grammar programs will underline something and they will point out if you are using a word incorrectly. And sometimes the program is wrong. I Yeah, I have to say that the most influential style manual these days may not be strong and white, um, but maybe whatever manual informs Microsoft Word. And so it's very hard, next to impossible, to get information about who writes the rules that underline those uh, grammar correction programs that we use um, every day when we just uh, type. I always switch it off, I have to say, because in my line of work, I have to produce a lot of so-called ungrammatical sentences just as examples, and just drives me mad to see all the squiggles um, that that tell me to correct my language. But my daughter, who is uh, 14, um, also asks me, why don't you just use Grammarly? And I look at her, it's like, whoa, I mean, no, I will not put my language usage into the hand of some software engineer. I want to decide myself how I write. Well, to play devil's advocate, though, because, you know, we've been talking about grammar as something that's very fluid, very changing, should be liberating. But there are some rules, I assume, that we want people to follow or that can grade us when it's when it's done improperly. Let's just take uh, less and fewer, few, uh, you know, so that mm-hmm. the way I was taught, you would say, I have less money, but fewer so you say less if it's more of a concept, if it's something you can enumerate, you know, fewer dollars, fewer dollars, less money. Is that not anything we have to pay attention? Should I go around saying I have, you know, less dollars? No, you shouldn't. It's a... Um so there it's, are it's, rules. It's not a, no, it's not a 100% rule, I would say. So if you do... Um, uh, corpus searches, or if you look historically, how these phrases have been used. Then, for example, when we talk about uh, time-related uh, nouns, there has always been a preference for less, so that people would say something like three hours or less, rather than three hours or fewer. Would you say three hours or fewer? No. So, And would you feel guilty that you're not saying that? No, because you've never heard it. Nobody's saying that. So there is more wiggle room than we think, which is what, what, what matters. So it's not just a matter of saying if you can count the noun, like ours, it has to be fewer. Apparently, whatever guides that usage is a bit more complicated than that. So let's talk about the impact on grammar of things like texting and social media. Yeah, texting, of course, uh, for linguists is just super exciting uh, because we now have a modality where um, 
we use written language, but we approach this modality with more of a spoken language mindset. We don't write so that it can be saved and stored for eternity. We write because um, that's uh, we we have these new uh, we have these. We have this new technology that just allows us to communicate with others very spontaneously using written language. So to see what the impact is of, of uh, texting is a very exciting question in linguistics. And as with all things, you need well-designed research to, to figure that out. And so one thing that many people are concerned about is that uh, texting may ruin um, young speakers, young writers' ability to process grammar or to pr process and understand and write longer sentences because there is this um, compression in texting. We leave out words. We use alternative spellings. We use acronyms. We just want to be short. And so there are uh, some experiments that show, interestingly, that very proficient texters, and the, uh, the research that I'm referring uh, to here was was done with middle schoolers in the Netherlands. But I'm not entirely sure that we cannot, that this wouldn't also hold for, for English speakers. I just want to point out where the research comes from. Uh, these researchers looked at the grammatic abilities of middle schoolers who texted a lot and some t didn't text so much and specifically looked at um, the grammar abilities of students who used a lot of acronyms and creative spellings and students who used a lot of omissions. And they found that the students who used a lot of omissions in another test on their grammar abilities actually performed better. And the researchers weren't really surprised because they said, when you decide to drop a word, basically your brain has to make a decision if this is a word that you can drop. Is this one of the little function words in English, like an article, or just a short preposition, or is this a meaning-carrying word like a noun or a verb, in which case you would, you would probably not drop it. So they're saying you, as you drop these words, you process the language. So it's like a, it's like a grammar exercise. Can I drop this? Can I not drop this? Obviously, this happens much faster. And students, middle schooler students who did this a lot, were better at processing grammar than the students who didn't do that a lot. And I thought that was a fascinating result. That is. So if, if somebody texts you, you up, they're actually carefully realizing you don't have to say, are you up? Yes, exactly. And uh, the researchers uh, thought that this might be, it's not entirely sure if it is, but this might be similar to what um, um, bilingual speakers do, because bilingual speakers always have to negotiate two different options. Uh, so basically, both languages are present in your brain, and you have to make the decision, am I following, am I speaking with my mother, so I'm following the grammar uh, of, of my first language, or am I speaking with, um, I don't know, my boss, so I'm following the grammar of this other language. So they constantly have to make the decision to use one system or another system, which gives them a, a cognitive advantage on some other um, on some other tasks. And the question is, if being very adept at negotiating two different registers or two different varieties within one language and within one grammar system might give you similar advantages. I've not really seen conclusive evidence here, but I just want to point out that dropping words can be a grammar-based task, as unlikely as it seems. Your favorite word in English? My favorite word in English is the word serendipity. 
It is my favorite word because of what it means. I just think it's fabulous to have a word for these fantastic, lucky encounters that make you happy. And it also has a very interesting history. It's one of the few verbs, uh, words that somebody just coined. Normally, when we create new words, we build them from material that already exists. But in serendipity, 18th century writer Horace Walpole created the word after a tale of the three princes of serendip, which um, was an old name for Sri Lanka. And those three princes, they... Um, just made discoveries when they were out journeying uh, through the world. They just made happy, lucky discoveries by accident. And so he decided to make that into a word, serendipity, and it actually caught on. And um, it took uh, over 150 years for the adjective serendipitous to be formed, uh, which I also think just sounds fabulous. It's in a fabulous word. And that doesn't happen all that often. Have you, if you ever try to create a new word and make other people use it, it's actually a very difficult task. Thank you so much for sharing your love of language, of grammar, and the excitement that it conveys. My guest has been Anya Vonner. Uh, I'm Emily Auerbach, hoping you can join us for the next hour of University of the Air.